Travis Bond is our guest today. And he is from Care Systems Inc. He's the founder and chief CEO, you know, chief executive officer, CEO of uh, CareSync Inc.com. Yes. Is so, it, what's the exact address? So it's just CareSync.com. CareSync.com. Well, thank you for being thank a you. guest today. Thank you. So, you know, to give us an idea of what it takes to begin a company and get it successful from the ground up as the founder of this company. Yeah, I think there's there's probably two broad paths that you take to entrepreneurism. One is that you sort of have a set of of um, of chromosomes that sort of are scanning your 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 environment and looking for gaps. You're just natively sort of like you have a sensitive nose for flowers. An entrepreneur has a sensitive thing of saying, uh, you know, this is missing or. Look why all these people keep walking on the grass over here. I would be the guy that would make the path either better or I would you know, make it cement because everybody gets muddy shoes when it rains. There would just be this sense we are constantly problem solving. I think that why that is important to, to sort of self-diagnose if you are an entrepreneurism is, is because for every win that you see, there are infinite number of more failures. And the reason is is that there is a, an extraordinary amount of perseverance as a set of proteins that you decode for and produce on a minute-by-minute minute basis in the sense that most people, when you look at it, you know, Twitter and some, you know, some other things, I mean, even MySpace predated Facebook, there are things that get iterated out there that others sort of take on and say, oh, I'll start on a different trajectory because I'm learning from the failures behind because there are people that are sort of, again, looking and scanning for gaps in the universe. The other kind of entrepreneurism is one that's really born from, say, I will call the W-2 line. So you're working for an employer and you see some gap within there or you natively just feel like it is dread going to work every day. And those are then the sense of people that either go work for a different company that better aligns with their behavior, um, or they then find that they have a domain knowledge from being in a place that, that is not my phone, by the way, that is his, I'm pretty sure. Um, I just didn't want to be blamed for that too. Uh, that, um, that the W-2 pathway to entrepreneur is there's two things that you really have to sort of be certain you're able to check the, the box. One is you need to have access to capital to risk going non-W-2, right? Meaning that somebody else is footing your payroll, your payroll taxes, and potentially your benefits. So then you sort of have to negotiate with either your parents or significant other or roommates that might let you miss a couple of months of rent or whatever it may be. But you, 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 so you, you have to have that sort of box check that if I want to go pursue something that is risky versus making my employer happy and keeping my job, then I have to have something to fall back on so that my dream can sort of break out of the gravity of the universe. The other component of, of natively going from W2 to entrepreneur is, is that you really have to feel convicted of the thing that you are experiencing as a W2 as that this industry is not going to adapt faster than their knowledge versus me going over and doing it myself. Now, Travis, you know, you're considered a healthcare technology disruptor. Can you give us what does that mean in how you organized your business? How does it disrupt the healthcare system? Well, I think you had to start with probably a dislike for authority <laughs> um, to be a disruptor. I think that there has to be just, it's, you sort of become the anarchist of your domain, right? So for me in healthcare, uh, you know, I thought it would be really neat to be a doctor, but I was finishing up business school down in Miami. And so there's a long path if you graduated with a BA in business and you want to be a physician. Um, you pretty much can take your transcripts and you might get credit for like Spanish or something, but other than that, you get demoted to freshman as a graduate. And that's what I did. I, I transferred back to Tampa. And, um, and got a degree in chemistry and then went to the University of South Florida Med School only to then drop out at the end of my third year. So there is a sort of a behavioral pattern that kind of, from my perspective, said healthcare is broken from the inside, W-2, right? And of course, these W-2 came in the form of student loans, which we all know about that. But <laughs> my employer was, I'm confessed and poor. You need to loan me lots of money. I'm going to give most of it to the University of South Florida College of Medicine. I'll keep some to eat on. But when you were inside the domain of healthcare, you really could see from the inside out that it was really messed up. 
And so for me, it was a sort of the entrepreneur bug with a business background that sort of overlaid it and said, well, why is this as a vertical of the economy so far behind? Now, what is the impor most important part of your company in healthcare at this time? How does that actually, you know, make the people better in what you're doing to help them make better? Well, I think that there, you know, as it relates to healthcare, most of the Oxygen has been sort of sucked out of the room, if you will, of the healthcare vertical by software alone. Meaning that if, if technology was going to solve for something, it has pretty much been done, at least at the macro level. There might be some sort of pockets of, of, of opportunity. But in healthcare, it, I mean, I think it might actually be cheaper to go into sort of deep sea drilling as a venture to when you start spending money and when you would get money out of it than in healthcare. The thing from what makes CareSync unique, why it's considered disruptive, is because for me, when I, you kind of have to go back one story before. So I dropped out of med school and then created the first browser-based electronic medical record and then sold it for about $45 million four years later. So check the box, wow, he did great. Actually, it was the hardest thing I can even imagine. I cannot tell you how many times I was walking around outside trying to figure out how to cover payroll, um, talking to investors, talking to clients, please don't leave us. I know it's, you know, we're going to come out with a fix for that. Doing all the things that you would expect in healthcare to keep the worst clients on the planet Earth called doctors happy, which is impossible because they're not happy people at all because they're very frustrated with their job. And so if they can take it out on the guy that tried to tell them that doing things with a computer would be far easier than with a pen, which, by the way, that was a complete lie, um, is that it, is, uh, it was very, very hard. I mean, we could scan documents and you'd get rid of some paper, and that sort of helped by a little bit. But the point was is that we had, a, we had a very successful exit because we had taken the risk to build a piece of technology that then a, another healthcare company was publicly traded, recognized that it was a lot cheaper to pay us multiples on what our investment was compared to the unknowns of building it internally. So now advance to what makes CareSync unique. The concept and thought was, again, sort of the entrepreneur surveillance always going off sort of like a radar is that families don't really have an electronic medical record, right? So if we get sick, we have problems, somebody gets a disease, whatever, it's email, it's Excel, it's verbal communication and storage with your physician as a patient. So we know that if we are have sick parents and or relatives, et cetera, we're using some type of social or email to sort of communicate that. Very, very fragmented. There's no real Facebook for health. And so or even ways for help. And so when you think about what we do is that we create a technology that allows people to interact and to share data and it's memorialized there and you can see the trends. We use the, the language that is native to healthcare, which has its complete own lexicon. And then we add in the labor component, that which is really the ways, in the sense that where we inspired to be is to help people navigate their health better. The people are defined as really not just the patient and their caregivers, but it's also physicians. So they can only make information as good that they know about it. And when you are sick, um, at least in a, from a U.S. healthcare statistics point of view, if you have two chronic conditions in the United States, you see 6.1 providers on average. If you have five, you're seeing 14 per year on average. So you can kind of understand the level of lack of collaboration between six or 14 physicians, especially they're not using the same EMR, same employer. So who is the intermediary that's trying to do that? So for us, the secret sauce is a technology-enabled service that basically got a rocket fuel from the fact that we were doing it on a B2C prior to 2015, and then it became B2B um, when, in 2015 when there was a set of CPT codes that came out for chronic care management. And so we now had the ability to have a pain segment that needed technology and needed humans to then basically coordinate care for those who have chronic conditions. So it was a technology-enabled service that became a disruptor. Now, when it comes to being an entrepreneur, we have quite a few entrepreneurs here that are part of the wave as well as others who want to know the breakthroughs that get them out of the early stages to the next level. How did you break out of getting everything organized to the point where it can now run itself with you as the founder being the visionary, 
managing the vision of the company rather than the mechanics of the day-to-day operations. That's the hard part of the early stages of being an entrepreneur, building that team. Yeah, you know, the the interesting thing, the difference between um, sort of a person who perseveres at the gym can show it through muscle mass or leanness. An entrepreneur will improve the equivalent at the brain level. It just doesn't show through the skull and hair. So you would never know about how much lifting the entrepreneur had done had had completed to sort of bulk up to something impressive. And so as an investor, you're gonna look at that through a balance sheet, profit and loss, run rate. You're gonna look at these sort of key metrics. I don't think we are really in a place where we are gonna see um, a lot of Airbnbs and a lot of unicorns, right? Even Slack would tell you, we do not F, no, he quoted, he actually said the whole word, but why it works. But yet there was Yammer, there were plenty of other sort of intranet environments for enterprise, and all of a sudden there's work. So I think that is, some of it, the breakthrough can be dumb luck, but it's it's probably the equivalent of getting struck by lightning in Tampa. You're most likely get struck by lightning <laughs> in Tampa versus yep. other places, but you're gonna have to be outside. Right, you, you, and so you kind of have to be in, in opportunity. What I think I want to reaffirm about what really is breakthrough breakthrough really is streamlining the value proposition to your segment. And you, if you cannot align those two things, then you will be like a dog in a dog part. You are just sniffing all over the place and running like your tail's cut off. Because you don't, you're, you'll be so confused through the excitement and enthusiasm of an idea, but you won't have a pathway to make it predictable, reliable, and scalable. And until you can do those, it is very hard for anyone to sort of take your model serious. And you're, you will start with a dream, you will put it in PowerPoint, you might raise a few hundred thousand, but quickly that whole story changed to Excel. And when it can't be demonstrated in Excel, you won't actually have the breakthrough that you need, but going from PowerPoint to Excel is aligning the value proposition to the segment that you're selling because each segment will be different. And then your question is, is it where do you place your bets? Because you only have a limited amount of check, uh, chips. You know, when it comes to the rough times, you know, we all know what it's like to, to get to the point. We've gone through the vision. We've gotten started. You know, everything is looking good. We have people telling us how great your idea is, what's happening. And then, of course, you you get into the mechanics of doing the business of the business. You know, how did you get through some of the areas that, you know, would normally start hitting a downturn and and to fix it up? Because it gets tiring after a while. Let me be perfectly clear, just in case you're under it. So, CareSync is my ninth company. It's, I have like all my fingers and I got one left over. <laughs> I have often told everyone I'm nine and done. I see that my CPA even showed up. He'd probably say, get out while you can. <laughs> um, there is never, and I mean ever, a time where it's not rough. Because what happens, it, let's go back to our analogy with, of the gym. When you start and you take 140 pounds and you can just like pop off 12 reps, what does a good trainer do? Adds more weights. Get to 12 and no problem, adds more weights. And before you know it, you're, you're, you're doing Herculean things. The business economy, pretty much globally, is going to continue to add weights. So if you're like, wow, we've done it great, we've broken through this, this magical you know, $1 million you know, revenue rate, somebody's going to tell you to. And then some will say four, and then it will go up, and then, oh, we're doing a billion dollars. Nope, nope, we're doing three billion. You take Athena Health. Um, and these are important that you understand this because as an entrepreneur, you have to think ahead, where is your exit ramp? Because you're not all designed to go from you know, cool cups of coffee, loud music, headphones, laptops, an idea, pure energy, and you still have enough to go out of bars at night versus the stodgy guy that deals with 12 assholes in a boardroom in a publicly traded environment. You are not the same person. At some point, you say, that's just not me. I am the coffee bar and that's how I like to whatever, or you're in Vegas and you're in these massive clubs. You, you just, you, you will not encode for both. And so you have to understand that. So Athena Health, which is a great example, I admire Jonathan Bush. 
immensely because he took a technology-enabled service in healthcare, and he paired up technology with billers in Maine, and he changed an industry. He took that company public, and he just laid off 400 people on Monday, even though his revenues go up and up. An activist investor bought a big chunk of the company, smacked him on the head, and said, you can't run this company anymore like it's this sort of fun zone. Sold the jet, sold their resort up in Maine, or they're both for sale now, told to go cut $150 million, and he fired 400 of basically what he said on his earning calls last week, which was really kind of the first 400 people. So the tale of longevity, they've shifted to a younger demographic. Point being is, entrepreneurism is hard. It can be extraordinarily rewarding, but you have to have a set of friends and or a really good mirror with no fog on it that sits there and says, to me and what I encode for, where is my off-ramp? Because you're not the same guy who starts at PowerPoint in a coffee house and goes to a board of, of directors in a publicly traded company. It's, it's, it's just not even humanly possible. With the exception of Facebook, he was smart enough and had enough tailwind where he never diluted himself on a cap table to the point where he is outvoted. That's why he can walk in to an, a hotel room and pay $3 billion for Oculus and nobody can do anything about it. He's probably the only person on the planet Earth right now that actually outvotes his board on, on a publicly traded company, without exception. Now, when it comes to dealing with those who don't understand the vision, how, did you, how do you get people to see the vision, comprehend it enough to be able to help then get them to become either supporters, sponsors, investors? Well, first you start with your core team. So you got to find people that you actually like to spend time with. And so I would say one of the litmus tests for a startup group is do you legitimately like each other? Ultimately, somebody's going to be an asshole. And, and if you're really smart, you would, have, you would have set the company up in such a way that their, their amount of the company that they own is performance-based, not just because you were in the room when the idea came up because you can never take that back. And then that's what you end up paying attorneys to go clean up. And that's happened. Even if I Facebook got sued because it was alleged that he borrowed the idea from you know those twin guys. Uh, whether he did or did not, the more success you come from the people that you that become your supporters, become the people that are going to burn the midnight oil, the people that are going to fuel the energy of the company, which becomes the ethos to which you then recruit and attract like-minded people, which builds your quote-unquote culture. So it really starts from you finding either enough within yourself to be the energy source where people kind of like a campfire want to be around, or you find a couple of other people that help maintain the fire, and it really grows from the core out, not the other way. Now, when it comes to, let's say, family support, how does family support figure into some of the areas in the businesses, especially in the early days, obviously, when you think about it from that perspective, because now you're already in the ninth company, so you don't really need that much family support. Well, I think, I feel like Bill Clinton, what do you mean by is? But family is, um, <laughs> for those who are old enough that got that. Um, so family takes on sort of a couple of different dynamics. So family in the sense where you've not, you know, um, had babies or gotten married, then you're looking at people to sort of kind of give you the reinforcement that you're not completely crazy and berserk. Then you have the family who is a source of what's called the triple F, you know, family, friends, and fools as your seed. And so family typically is the source that you go to to get the first check written. So family in that case, as it as it is categorized as investors, is extraordinarily important because those are the ones that will basically de-risk through love the most what your idea is. As you then go forward, family actually becomes less important um, only in as much if you still want to remain married and you are married and or have kids and because what happens is that people that are passionate have a tendency to spend most of their time on the passion, which then there's only 24 hours a day. And based upon my meds list and my history, I know that you can do about 18, but you still have to sleep and eat at least four hours. And so family then can become somewhat of a counterweight to the amount of input that you can put into the company. So basically at some level, family is always important. But I think the one thing that sometimes is important is that sometimes you have to really ask your family as to be somewhat of a focus group. 
are they really sort of floating this idea past them? They love you. They gave birth to you, so they'll, they'll, they'll at least pay attention to you for at least hopefully 30 minutes so you can get your pitch across. And then use them as somewhat of an input or output. You know, to me, my dad says, you know, I think if you went to, you know, a year or two of college, that would be great. And then um, I spent 15 years in college. And so um, that wasn't necessarily valid data points, what I'm saying. So to some degree, they're important. They engage them. They can be a source of revenue or they can be a source that insulates you, that gives you the time to then go and basically carry out your idea. Now, how many areas of the United States does SyncCare cover? Okay, it's CareSync. Care. Oh, that's it's okay because you're going to confuse a lot of people. It's fine. Um, so, um, actually, it's a very clever URL if you think about it. We we sync care, but it's CareSync, um, and, and so it's a very valuable URL. But the, um, I would say we are, we have customers. In 35 or 36 states, we have users in about 46 states that are paying users. And then we have caregivers and family and other members that are actually in all states, probably plus a dozen other countries. Now, when it comes to CareSync, that's the mess it up, CareSync, do you focus on the doctor side or are you, looking, are you focusing on both the doctors and the consumer using the system? Yes. <laughs> Which is the most important at this point for CareSync? Yes. <laughs> now this is what you call a hostile guest. You got to get them to do a little bit more than the yeses. Now, when it comes to the doctors, do you, are is there a specific area of doctors that are part of CareSync that is the most functional for the you know for the for the consumers? Yes. Um, I'll follow that up. Yes, comma. Um, so. I uh, will pull the audience. So what is the most important thing that you know about your business model? Value prop to segment. So value proposition to doctors is money. Then there's money. And then the third, most importantly, is money. Um, so you have to be certain that you're giving a pathway for doctors. But then there are segments of doctors, right? So there are pain and ortho and OBGYN. There are those that are owned by a hospital system. There are those that are their own entrepreneur and they have one, they're one doctor and they have a little fiefdom and it's on the corner of such and such and so and so. From our perspective, we have found that the important element for success is our ability to integrate with the workflow of the physician. And a physician would be defined in multiple ways is that and this goes back to value proposition to your segment. So is the physician an employee or are they the employer? Because in an employee, you're changing workflow for them to adopt your product. There are different levers to change their behavior. There are on the other side, different levers. If you are a two doctor practice and new revenue is an important element of survival. And so that's where the value proposition would be, say, different. At Cleveland Clinic, money, money, money is important to the people that own Cleveland Clinic. The doctors that work there, it's quality. So that goes back to the prior question, whereas how does a, how does a physician then define quality? What their patients say about the service. And so, unfortunately, it is, um, it is very, very hard to make things work in healthcare when, when patient participation is a requirement and a feedback. So I'll use a quick analogy. If you are going to make a, a medication, and let's say it's called, I'll pick a name out of my hat, Viagra. When Viagra first came out, um, it probably had a street value greater than heroin. Because what? It worked, just it worked. in case you were wondering. Um, and... I know this because I was studying to be a urologist, and so they would bring it by the cartfuls to the office. And then all of a sudden, it's like, where'd the samples go? They were just here two hours ago. Well, everybody and their grandmother grabbed hands full of me because it worked. So what do you have in terms of a value proposition in the segment? You have men who basically after 40, regardless of how hard they try, cannot be and perform like an 18-year-old. One pill, an hour later, you're an 18-year-old again. That is positive feedback, as we would call it in a consumer space. So what you have is the patient going back to the provider and saying, what? I want more of the Viagra. And then you have the provider billing for the visit 
because it's not over the counter. So that's why it's very important that sometimes value propositions have two sides to it, right? It has access, it has a consumer. In our case, we unfortunately have three. We have the provider, the patient, and the payer. And that is a three-legged stool. Rip out one of those and the stool falls over. Now, how have the, you know, the healthcare laws that are coming out now, are they positive for what you're doing or will it be more of a problem? Do you know? Well, there's regulatory risk, there's legislative risk, and then there's basically payer population risk. I think really um, you never really know, right? So Secretary Price was there, everybody thought we knew what he would do, then the guy's gone. And, you know, a couple of you know, direct flights using a smaller airplane basically ended the guy's career. How, you as an entrepreneur cannot figure that stuff out. There's just no way you guess for craziness. So you're, you're plodding along the way thinking that you have somebody who likes Medicaid and somebody who's friends of this, and all of a sudden you can get derailed from a policy pers perspective. I think the thing is it relates to healthcare and trying to navigate the risks as it relates to what administration is in, et cetera. You really just need to go back to the CPT codes, which are really basically the pricing book for all of healthcare, and then you basically need to focus in on your segment and value prop, some of the other macro things, which can be a light switch. I mean, regular, you know, CMS can come in and say, in 2018, we're not going to pay for blah, fill in the blank, you know, post therapy for hip replacement. If you are the physical therapy for hip replacement and you know you're getting paid under that code and that code goes away, then that is a real business risk. But the, the point is is that it's almost academic to really be thinking about risks while you're also trying to nurture your idea. It's matter of fact, it's counterintuitive. You, there are a lot of other people that will tell you about risk because the other 99% of the population, that is their frame of mind. That's why they work for someone else or the government, right? They are looking for secure environments where they know what next Wednesday and the Wednesday after that are going to look like and that's who they are and they'll go spend time at football games and other things on weekends because their life is balanced that way don't think about risks as much at a micro level as you could be at least know where sort of the cones are in the road that you have to navigate around um, is the far better use of the energy now when it comes to expanding how do you manage let's say your structure of what you're going to be doing. Is it quarterly? Is it every six months? You know, what do you try to do to expand the company and how often do you push for the expansion? You know, like what, what will you be doing in the next, let's say, 12 months? Are you looking for expanding more on the doctor side, expanding more on the user side? How do you structure that so this way you're not constantly doing the same thing over and over again. Great question. So I'm going to ask the audience again, and hopefully they get it right. So what's the most two important things? Value to segment. Value prop to segment. So you cannot avoid answering that question and then tell you what your 12-month plan is. And so you look at past data to go into the future. I would say that it's that the roadmap of your planning, so the sort of the how far your headlights are down the road, until you really get to what would be clearly defined as a market success, those headlights probably don't go beyond 30 days. Um, even publicly traded companies, their headlights go in quarters. Only if you're Walgreens and other and you're 100 years old and you have this just huge infrastructure do you even consider three to five years plans. I mean, otherwise, you, your budget, your hiring, your product, all these other things really are done sort of in kind of the, in 90 days, we think we should be here, but really we're managing to week to week to week to week. So what is your company looking for in the next, let's say, 90 days? Are you looking to expand for more clients to be part of your network? No, <laughs> um, which is counterintuitive. What we're really looking at is, I'll say it again, refining that we have aligned to the value proposition to the segment that we've already sold to. Because we've already sold to thousands of physicians. Tweaking that model in terms of what we will do in the next 12 months really has to be reaffirmed that the market liked what we were doing at 1,000 doctors before anyone would finance what it looks like to 10,000 doctors. But here's the catch. If you're not growing, you're dying. And if you're taking investor money, 
they're always looking for results. So you really have to be nimble where you are balancing the use of capital to give yourself micro achievements such that if you are an investor, you can sort of see the trend of the dots on the line. Now tell us about your team. How did you organize your team? As far as what did you look for first when you first got the company started? So this way those who are still in the early stages of building their team can understand what to look for and how to build the critical parts of their team. There's two ways you can go with that. You can be very compartmentalized. So think about it, the Manhattan Project which built the A-bomb, right? That was a very secretive project and so nobody knew what the whole bomb looked like. They were some were refining uranium, others were looking for fuses, others were looking at the containers that would hold something that would control reaction. Nobody had all the pieces of the pie. It was very effective. There was the motivation that nobody wanted to start speaking Japanese or Russian in the US, so we, we really were motivated for that. And, um, and so as it relates to building a culture, you have to ask yourself, do you want to sort of be a culture that's all inclusive? And that works, but not after 30 people. Or do you want to sit there and say, we want to build a thing, and the thing can be broken up like the atom bond, and so therefore I need a designer, a product manager, a developer, a business analyst, somebody to sell and market, and then I'm going to carve up, if you will, the project in such a way that everybody is just laser focused on that feature, that benefit, or that marketing collateral. That is another way. It really, my advice is, is that you, your first hurdle you have to overcome really is what is the minimum viable product that proved that you have alignment with a value proposition with a business segment. Then you can start to figure out how to scale. Again, that's sort of in the risk bucket. So to how you organize a company for the first 30 employees is not incredibly important in a stack rank uh, position as it relates to do I really have something that the world wants. Um, after 30 people, I don't know that it makes any sense to strive, at least with the, the business pressures that we have now um, at a global scale in terms of time, efficiency, and use of capital, that once you get past 30 people, you as leaders need to think about how you are people, putting people in teams so that they can be very agile but that they're not distracted with all the other cool bells and whistles that the rest of the company is doing. So what you can do is you can really flood out the talent by then them being the glue between all these different projects, right? So you really actually sort of start stalling the car down by trying to, to do too much with too many people. Now, what, you know, one of the areas I was looking on your website, you have three package plans. You have CareSync Plus, the concierge service. You have one-time health history as well as the CareSync do-it-yourself. Tell us about why is it just three packages that are part of the program and, and how do they work? So what we are advertising on our website that the consumers would see really is our B2C legacy product. And this really meant that it's sort of kind of a doing your own health care coordination but you lack really two sort of key assets. One, you, you lack the actual medical records so that you then can use your story plus another doctor's definitive data to sort of help you along your journey. Uh, and so we basically segmented out on how long you think you would need that service for. So if you were someone with chronic diseases, then you would buy a, year, you know, a yearly renewal program because that was the cheapest. If you knew that you were just going for a knee replacement or something else and you knew it was episodic, you might buy our service to get medical records to help you pre and post this procedure and then you sort of just keep it at caresync.com forever <clears throat> because it is a free service unless you're asking us to do something for you. So that is part of our model to encourage caregivers participation. So if I you know, invite Darla and Darla to see parts of my record, it doesn't cost Darla something to do that. Now, as far as the package plan itself, let's say the, the do-it-yourself, what is included in that and how does that actually help the client maintain their records and why would they want the service? Well, I think from a do-it-yourself perspective is you, you're engaged in your healthcare, you have um, lots of data. Uh, typically that sort of looks like the, the very engaged caregiver or patient who walks into a doctor's offices and has about six inches of paper. 
um, this person has been sort of the pack rack, and they want to really know what has happened so that they sense that the efficiency of each subsequent visit to treat their disease or discover their disease is more efficient than the last one. In order to kind of go from paper to electronic, you could sort of scan everything into Evernote, but the point of it is, is that's not structured, so it doesn't really help you. And portability, you don't even have the sort of the screaming six inches of paper, so if you have your iPhone, doctors don't want to touch your iPhone. So from our perspective, if you have that information, then you can, you can do it yourself in terms of putting that data into CareSync, and now it's in a structured format. So I saw this doctor. We have a list of a million doctors and facilities in the United States. He said, I have this disease. We have tens of thousands of diseases in the system. And he's given me this medication. And we have all the medications, including over-the-counter. And so that now you're using structured data to sort of memorialize what was in this paper format. So now you could basically fax, fax you know, email, et cetera, basically a cleaned-up version of what other people's stuff looked like. And then you can enter in your own data, like your pain and whether you took your medications or not each day, et cetera. And so it does give them at least an environment to organize data capture, personal data, in a way to then propagate or send that data to those that would absorb it. And the advantage of CareSync is that it puts it into a format that physicians will read because these physicians have been trained to read and consume healthcare data in a very specific format. So people can actually use it on the web whether they have a, you know, an iPhone, an iOS, or a Droid. You know, so it tracks all the medications, reminders. How does it do reminders? So if you set a reminder for getting your pills, you have to go to the doctor, it maintains all of your little issues that you may have that you yeah. add the data, and it keeps it, track, it keeps it in track for you? Right. So, um, you know... Let's just use a couple of things, like birth control, right? So what, one of the ways that birth control worked in terms of creating adherence was to not put everything in a bottle, but actually put a dame and a date. So they could follow, this is Monday, this is Tuesday, and if you missed one, like Tuesday, Tuesday's still there. Uh-huh. When things are in an amber bottle, it's not so you know, um, cognitive, right? It, it is the sense that it's like, I don't know if I remember or not, you might look in and shake it around, and it's the end of the month and you still got seven pills. There's nowhere to really sort of memorialize that data and tell your physician because what what a physician is doing is if they're giving you a medication to let's say treat um, high blood pressure if you don't take it all the time and then you go back to the physician and your blood pressure is still high the physician will interpret that that medication didn't work well in all actuality it's probably adherence that didn't work and so what happens he changes you to another drug so what does that mean? Then you go see the doctor again another 30 days. And so adherence becomes a big deal from a scientific discovery perspective of is this medication that is indicated to treat this disease work or not work? Not everything is so clear as, say, Viagra, right? And it is, it is that sort of thing that as you get more diseases, you get more pills, usually two to three pills per disease. So if you have five disease, they're going to be you know, 15 to 20 amber bottles lined up, that's impossible for anyone to sort of mentally keep track of. And so once you put that medication into the system and ask who prescribed it, what are you taking it for in terms of your problem list, and then so how often are you taking it? Well, I take it three times a day. I take it at 8 and 6 and 12, uh, and then I'll get push alerts on my phone. I'll get, you know, emails, etc. But then you can also invite your caregiver network in because if you are a person that has Alzheimer's, you're not going to remember taking any pills at all. So you are the patient gets put in, but your caregivers need also those alerts to know to walk up and give you the pills. So medication adherence is actually a really big deal. Uh, to put just a number on, it's estimated somewhere between 400 to $450 billion of our $4 trillion budget in healthcare is wasted on lack of adherence to medications. So it's a significant plague of the healthcare efficiency. Now, for the providers who are using the system, you know, wh- what are the benefits and how is it organized? And does the provider get connected with the consumer if they're on the same system? They can, but the thing with physicians is they won't. Um, the reality of it is, is that physicians predominantly have their, their workspace is now the EMR because of all the meaningful use regulations that was put on the fact that, for those of you who didn't know, the government spent about $32 billion buying EMRs for everybody over the last four years. And so now they have committed to using it, or some of that money would be clawed back by the government. And so their primary work screen is their EMR. It is 
it is difficult, though we have done it, and it's very expensive, to take what's going on over here in terms of coordinating care. And defining coordinating care is kind of like Amazon shopping cart. So a physician in his head has a whole bunch of things that he's sort of diagnosing, and then he's like, look, I want you to take these two pills. I want you to go get a lab report. I want you to go to this other physician to get this test. So he's put really three items in a shopping cart. From our perspective, then those become tasks that we coordinate. We are certain that, did you get your pills filled? Well, no, I didn't. Why not? Well, because I can't afford them. Why didn't you tell your doctor? Because I'm embarrassed that I can't afford them. Okay, well, we have some drug coupons and other things that make it affordable. Great. Okay, so you're going to get those done. Fine. Okay, you need to go get your lab test done. You can go to a blood draw station. Well, that's kind of hard because why? Well, I take a bus. So 25% of all things that are missed in healthcare have to do directly with transportation, if you didn't know that. So 25% of the longer hospital stays is because nobody has a way to leave the hospital. You can put you on the sidewalk, you'll still be there the next day. You have no way to leave the property. The other 25% in ambulatory is, is you couldn't get there because you didn't have a reliable ride, your car broke down, the bus schedule, whatever. So the point of it is that we coordinate what are some of these social barriers to basically then say that, look, doctor, you put three things in the shopping cart. At the end of the month, we basically process these things in the shopping cart, and we send that information back to the EMR to say we've done these things. Now, when it comes to some of the recurring models you have in your system, is there an opportunity for consumers or people outside of your network to become part of the business? Kind of like an affiliate program. How do you develop... It, either marketing or something that you, connects people. Is that part of your system already, or is that something that is in consideration? The problem with healthcare, and Google will tell you this, and all the biggies would tell you is, it is a highly regulated environment. And so it's, it's probably easier to open up a gas station, which I hear there's still like 800 boxes you have to check off to actually go build and, and, and open up a gas station because of all the EPA rules, et cetera. But in healthcare, based upon the payer, there's a rules that come with that money. If you're taking money from the patient, there are a person directly, so a B2C model, there are no rules. So you then can have all kinds of affiliate programs, brokerages, agreements, and all these other kind of things to get your word out. They'll take a percentage of that. You go to then the other extreme of money with no hooks to Medicare, it's so full of hooks, it kind of looks like a bait store gone bad. I mean, you just can't walk around without stepping on hooks. You can't do anything with sharing money under Medicare uh, because it then is, from their perspective, it looks like you're trying to induce someone's behavior to spend government dollars because they are paid when it happens. That's called fee-for-service. It's called fee-splitting. These are things the government is sort of violently moving away from. Uh, so from our perspective, we have a franchise model that we do. Um, weather-wise, we are just direct selling uh, through our partners or strategic partners, which means that they are already an incumbent in the healthcare system, like a large EMR company or a large payer. And we, we have other arrangements that are more so along lines with data transmission and so forth as being the way that we monetize um, the value proposition, or we are a subcontractor to them. But from an affiliates program, and you're dealing with Medicare, my advice is stay away from it. It's a waste of time and energy. Now, when it comes to the technology, is there, is your technology and how you set it up functional in other sectors of the of businesses that may be able to use your technology and how you? I wouldn't say sectors. I would say segments. So employers, so employers are their larger larger employers are their own payer. So at CareSync, to give you a data point, in 2018, we will spend two million dollars in premiums to give insurance benefits to our employees. That's a lot of dollars, by the way. Um, you can start a few companies on $2 million, much less get to sort of the over. So what happens when you sort of get beyond there, when you start paying 3 and 4 and $5 million, it actually becomes beneficial for the employer to be his own payer. So in that scenario where you have a piece of technology that is coordinating care, making data retrievable and usable at the point of care, at the right place, right time, then that employer is saying, look, you can actually save my patients from duplicate tests because you have the results from the old ones. You can actually help them coordinate to actually, when they do take a day off from work, they're actually going to go to the appointment that they need. Um, you are going to remind them that they always need an annual whatever. And those, all of those are real statistical data points that, that if a patient or a person does that, they will spend less or utilize less in healthcare. And so employers is another valuable segment that our service, because they are a payer, 
are incentivized to basically take costs out of the system, which that is going to be my last one of my last bullet points. So I said value proposition is segment. And the other, the other thing you need to write down is this. We, company X, telling investors why we take costs out of this system. So if you so to them that is sort of like um, catnip for them. If you are saying we're taking costs out of this, whatever that is, right, then they'll believe that you have a perpetual opportunity for business value creation. Is because people are cost avoidant or cost, you know they don't want to, no one wants to spend more money, right? So they're only going to spend a dollar if they think they're saving two. So in the early stages of the investor relation process. Can you give us an idea of what you had to do to organize for investors to really want to open up their checkbook? Because, you know, having people from the wave in this area, you know, we're here at the attic. For those that don't know where we are, we're live. We're at the attic, downtown Tampa, 500 East Kennedy. And we're doing this just above the WAVE, which is a organization designed to help incubate new companies and get them out into the field functioning so they have the resources, the technology, as well as the ability to, to work with people with, that have already expanded to the point where they can get that kind of knowledge. So that's where we are. And the important factor is getting the investments for companies that need investments. When you're talking directly with that investor, what is the best way to actually have those conversations? So, so I'm going to say to two things, um, to use some old cliches. One is, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, 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 right? And I think it was um, Woody Allen who said 80% of life is just showing up. Actually, those are profoundly important, both of them, to raising money. So one is... Um, you know, if you, if you want to catch fish, you probably should find a body of water. If you want to raise money, you need to really figure out where those people are. In terms of the practice, 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 what you'll find in your seed and your series A, and even tier B, that the investment process is extraordinarily helpful to get harsh critiques on what your model is. Because what will happen inevitably is... Um, I would probably say we met with 30 or 50 investors before we raised our first Series A, which was $5 million. Um, we've since to go on to raise over $50 million. So you can imagine how much practice I have done and how much showing up I have done. But the point of it is, is that every investor will always ask you a question that you don't know the answer to. And that is the new thing that you need to go back and figure out because they have found a hole because what they're trying to do is trying to absolutely find any reason to move on to the next investment because they see a 1,200 investments a year. And so it's only when you start to sort of hit and play flawlessly your sheet of music where then you start to get people say, I want to write you a check. So in order to really raise money, you must go where they are. But to go where they are, you really need to take it in a sense that this is sort of painful to have someone call your baby ugly, but unless you let enough of them call you ugly, you'll never have any idea what outfits they need to be in. You just won't. Now, did you t do you talk to investors who are official investors, or do you just talk to people that may be investors? Because you really don't know who's interested in investing. How oh. did you look for the investors? I'm sure people here who are looking for investors, that's the number one problem. How do you find people interested in investing? Do you talk to doctors, lawyers? Do you talk to no, the, the no, mechanics? No, stay I don't away know. From those guys. Stay away from those guys. <laughs> stay away. Stay away. Stay away. Stay away. As investors. Not as critiquers and not as guidance. So definitely get... So, so even before you get to investment, make a friend with an attorney that is used to doing business transaction deals because he will tell you what is market and what's not market. If you don't have that person, you're going to make some deal that you have no idea is really great or it ends up being horrible. So that's one. Two is is that for seed money, so the first 250000 it is okay to sort of talk to some of those people. But there is no idea that really exists anymore that's still not going to cost probably 15 to $20 million, 10 to 20 
you, through the life history, you, you would be very surprised at the fact of how much money you actually really need to raise before you actually become profitable. And so you want to keep an, the, um, the, invest, the non-sophisticated investor group to a minimum because the others will come in and say, well, who are these yahoos, right? Because they don't want to deal with an unsophisticated group of people that may have voting rights and may have some rights at the table that then they just find as sort of annoyance. It's sort of like, I love the girl, I hate the parents, so you just break up with a girl because you don't really want the parents all the time. Investors are sort of the same way. So you want to keep that nucleus of non-sophisticated investors in a minimum. You want an attorney that is a business transactions attorney that can sit there and give you the guidepost as what's a good term sheet or a bad term sheet. But no, you want to find those people that are professional investors, even if they're quali- quantified at the seed level, because they are going to put business disciplines around the investment structure that will always be, (laughs) it's your legacy. There's really no ever way to sort of get rid of those people. They are always going to exist unless they sold their shares. Um, And people don't typically do that um, unless there's somebody out buying them. Uh, And so, you know, there's a lot of complexities there. So the more people you get in front of, the better the practice and the more likely you'll run into somebody that actually loves the program. Because not every investor has all the, they want to invest in various areas, but not necessarily in your area. Yeah, and, and it's, all, it's, it's always fair to ask the question, do you know of other investors that you've dealt with that you think would be a good reference? I mean, if you spend an hour in front of them and they basically poo-pooed all over your idea, you might as well at least get a, a reference from it. Nice. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to talk about? in this conversation today? Well, I think I'd like to just encourage people that want to be entrepreneurs and want to be successful is that you cannot escape the laws of physics. And what that really means is you really have to understand the transactional element of your business. If you don't understand its costs, if you don't understand its profit margins, if you don't understand some of these things and they freak you out, that's fine. You're the creative type. Even Walt Disney had a relative that sort of made the movie company work and the parks get built. Um, then find that other person. But we're really, everything is just too sophisticated now to sort of think that you're going to, you know, grow some magic plant or do something that's somehow just going to be, you know, wonderful without any of the sophistication because the world is too sophisticated now. But I do think that there's plenty of room. Um, we are the best country on the whole planet to basically cultivate the, the, you know, the incubation and genesis of great ideas, perseverance, perseverance, and perseverance. Um, and really what is the difference between a successful business and not a successful business really is a length of time. So always remember that you have to stay alive long enough to succeed.